0: But we know, working in schools, that it's not just A or B, there are so many nuances to what helps students in schools learn, and um, that's the hard thing about politics is folks really want to simplify it and say, you know, choose A or B, that's it, (laughs) when it's not multiple choice anymore, right, as your show is called, it's All of the Above.
1: And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by...
2: What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is year 17 in the classroom. And this, of course, is all the above, your home for news and analysis, of all matters pertaining to the world of education and this here episode jeff i don't know if you realized it but this is a episode number 60
1: the big 60 yes oh did you did
2: you bring cupcakes this time you brought cupcakes for number 50
1: yeah that kind of set a precedent
2: I, i expect every you know 50 60 70 then 75
1: of course I believe the official um, all the above cupcake budget is zero dollars, Manuel. So um, we'll we'll call this a metaphorical cupcake that I'm holding uh, in honor of this uh, exciting uh, milestone on on our way uh, to to a bold one hundred. Indeed,
2: indeed, and um, you know if you're listening on the go and you're looking at your podcast app and you're like, oh, but it says it's. They have way more than 60 episodes. That's of course because of our passing periods which we drop in between these full episodes. And if you're watching on YouTube and you're like passing period, what the heck is passing period? Well, that means um, you should check us out on your uh, favorite uh, podcast streaming platform because we drop audio only episodes in between our full episodes. And um, you know, they're pretty dope. It's just me and Jeff talking about stories that don't really make it into these full episodes. So definitely check those out. And while you're there, go ahead and give us those uh, five stars in um, Apple Podcast, we would very much appreciate that. Um, so, Jeff, here we are, full episode. Um, lots going on in the world. What are we going to talk
1: about mm. today? Well, uh, I think it's that's that might be the understatement of the year, man. Lots going <laughs> on in the world. It's 2020. <laughs> you are lots correct. Is a, is an insufficient term. Um, so, man, well, we got a great one today, and I'm very excited because you know it's a bit of a rare occurrence, I must say. Um, to date at least on our show for us to have a guest for a second time there's a there's a very narrow list of folks who uh, who we have had on the show as a guest um, multiple times today is going to welcome a new member of that elite club um, and she was a fantastic guest when we had her back in uh, season two um, talking about um, talking about the kind of controversy around Teach for America. Um, But today we're having her back in a a perhaps a much more celebratory moment because she is none other than Tanya Ortiz Franklin, who is the newest elected member of the Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education. Tanya has been elected to Board District 7, which is kind of the the, the southernmost district um, in the city, which stretches from uh, South Los Angeles all the way down to the harbor. And um, Tanya is going to be with us to not only talk about you know, sort of her experience on the campaign, um, some of her priorities going into office in the nation's second-largest school district in the midst of a pandemic, uh, which is, you know, like you said, lots going on. Um, and also, we're going to get, you know, a chance to talk a little bit about just some of the politics um, and the money that's infused into campaigns, and uh, you know what it's like to to have an attack ad made against you. Uh, man, well, an attack ad that. Um, yeah may or may not have featured footage from a certain uh, educational talk show hosted by two of the dopest educators you know around. So uh, that's a, another first here uh, on all the above. That's just hilarious well.
2: to me. I don't know why, but it's just hilarious to me. And if you're yeah, wondering what man. we're talking about, we'll, we'll show you and you'll hear it. It's just, it's kind of hilarious to me. I don't know why. It just is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Tanya's going to be here. We got lots to discuss with her. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it.
2: Dope. Sounds like a fantastic agenda for today. Can't wait. Um, And of course, up first, though, we're going to take a look at news in the world of education, especially headlines that you might have missed. And that is our segment that we like to call The Do Now. Stay tuned.
1: Hey folks, thanks for watching all the above. We really appreciate you and we need your help. We're trying to get the word out about all the above to everyone. Here's what you can do. Go to aotashow.com, that's our website. All the links to all of our content is there. You can share our stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Send the links to friends, colleagues, educators you know who could benefit from this type of show. Help us spread the word about all the above. Thanks, enjoy the show. All right,
2: folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff,
1: how are we gonna do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, uh, today, you know, it is, I have to say, really, frankly, it's my favorite way that we do the Do Now. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, right? It's like having a favorite kid, or a favorite finger, or something like that. Favorite <laughs> but, uh, finger?
2: <laughs> Who's know? got a favorite you know? finger? <laughs>
1: I'm just saying they're, they're all equal, but uh, but today's type, which is an especial uh, especially favorite type of do now for me, is a lexicon. We're gonna talk about some vocabulary. We're gonna get into some some key terms for today's discussion.
2: All right, lexicon. Let's build that vocabulary up. Um, all right, Jeff. First lexicon term for today is um,
1: obfuscation. Mm. Obfuscation. You know, it's one of those words that I I like because it's just it's a little clunky, doesn't quite roll off the tongue. But it does uh, not. But it's it's a word. It's perhaps an underutilized word um, in our language because we have so many things, especially in this, you know, in this post-truth alternative facts era in which we live uh, that where, you know, we have language that just, just hides the truth right we have like uh you know commissions to restore the integrity of the wilderness that are about you know giving oil mining rights to you know to companies and national parks and stuff like that so um i love it obfuscation what's who's obfuscating what today Manuel?
2: Yeah, man. Well, this doesn't have to do with uh, wilderness, but um, it's probably equally important, if not more important. Well, nothing's more important than nature. Um, But yeah, uh, very important obfuscation going on with regards to school funding, especially inside of districts. All right. A lot of times when we talk about school funding and and inequities in funding, we we talk about the differences in in different districts. But this story has to do with um, funding disparities within school districts, all right? And this comes from the Heckinger report after some good reporting by Tara Garcia Mathewson. and she reports that a new federal financial reporting requirement has recently taken effect which demands that states report per student spending by school, just as just as they report student performance by school. And the Heckinger report analyzed state and local spending by school within nearly 700 districts from 40 states. This data was mostly from the 2018-2019 school year. And their analysis found multi million dollar funding disparities between schools within the same communities. In total, they found that 53. U.S. districts spend less state and local money on high poverty schools than on lower poverty schools. For example, Ronald D. O'Neill Elementary School and Centennial Elementary School are both in Illinois' second largest district, which is U-46, and they are situated just nine miles away from each other. O'Neill's student population is 90% low-income and 70% English learner, while Centennial's is 20% low-income and only 17% English learner. O'Neill is designated as needing targeted assistance, while Centennial is celebrated for quote, exemplary academic performance. And this analysis from the Heckinger Report found that O'Neill received $9,094 per student in 2019 in state and local funding, compared to Centennial's $10,559. If O'Neill had received Centennial's per-pupil funding, it would have meant an extra $789,000 in its budget. A lot of factors affect school-level spending, but a handful of district practices Routinely drive these disparities. For example, schools within um, or schools that serve the wealthier students tend to draw the most experienced teachers who cost more. And because small schools cost more to operate, districts that happen to have more of these schools in higher income areas may end up spending more on wealthier kids. Jeff, how surprised are you, or what are your thoughts about the fact that um, looking at a, a per pupil spending within? school districts shows these these
1: dispairs. Yeah, so i am disappointed i'm sad i'm frustrated and i'm not even a tiny bit surprised not even a little bit <laughs> um so this is true in literally every sizable district across the country uh you know that we have these these hidden or obfuscated uh one might say uh, inequities that are, that are kind of baked into the system. Now, there is a slice of this that I think is um, you know, is very difficult to address, uh, although I would push and urge um, us as a profession, educators and, and teacher unions to take this challenge on, right, which is to say, typically speaking, schools that serve higher income student populations have more veteran teachers who stay in those positions for longer periods of time. And teaching is a profession where your pay is based almost entirely on seniority. And so by definition, right, districts are going to spend more money on the schools where the teachers who've been in the the profession, right, who who have been teaching longer, where they are concentrated, and so that means a larger share of districts' budgets is going to go to fund the most, you know, quote unquote, expensive teachers who tend to work at schools that are wealthier, that are whiter, right, that are serving, um, you know, uh, the the slice of our student population within districts that has the lowest needs from the system right Um, now I I don't think that that is one of those policies that is um, let's say racist in the same way that you know we have other policies that are more like directly (laughs) or intentionally racist but it creates right disparate racial outcomes and I think needs to be addressed purposefully in that way. Um, Now, there are a bunch of other uh, aspects on this, Manuel, that I think are even more problematic. So one you named around like magnets, special programs, right, that, uh, you know, dual language immersion programs where we're going to like supplement funding for this elementary school to have like a French teacher or, you know, to have more STEM, you know, credentialed teachers or these kinds of things that districts have created all kinds of versions of these sorts of programs specifically to cater to middle class and more upwardly mobile folks and specifically white folks, and in some contexts, certain Asian American groups, um, so that they will stay in school districts, right? And what no one wants to talk about, <laughs> and what this uh, this story is naming, which is really just the result of a a very deeply buried small piece of legislation in the uh, you know in the uh, in the major federal legislation around education, right? The Every Student Succeeds Act that uh, that requires states to now report on uh, and districts to report on school-level spending, right, which we can then turn into an analysis of per-pupil spending. So we didn't even used to know this this data for sure, and now we know it, right? And we could say that, look, man, actually what we're doing in this sort of effort to retain middle-class families and white families in our school systems is even further exacerbating the inequities that we have. So not only was the amount of funding that we had for our schools not enough to begin with, but within that pie that's too small, we're giving too large a slice of the pie to the folks who, need, who don't need the biggest slice, right? Um, and so I think it raises all kinds of interesting issues that we need to tackle around saying like, look, what does equitable funding mean? And how are we going to create it politically in a context where, you know, people uh, feel very entitled to the slice of the pie that they currently have? And everyone wants a bigger slice. So I'm loving the fact that we have this data. I think we need to blow it up on every media platform that we have, because the only thing that I can think of that is going to force change on this really is is like sunlight. Right. It's just the, the public shame of districts and schools. Uh, and districts and states operating this way. What uh, What do you think, Manuel?
2: Yeah. So, I um, mean, what one thing that I found particularly interesting is the schools that they profiled in this piece. So, Centennial High School, the one that's regarded, as, you know, for its high academic excellence or whatever, um, according to the article, is something like sixty five percent white. And O'Neill, which was labeled for targeted academic assistance, um, only only five percent white, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, this is is fully fully intertwined with the racial dynamic of of our country and, and you know we we heard so much talk about systemic racism and you know there's a lot of folks out there that are still kind of unclear about what that is and how that works and here this is perfect example i mean within the same district and the article mentioned that a lot of district leaders were uh, a bit surprised to see this because they didn't quite you know think of it in these terms and quite realize how the impact of their district level decisions on the per people spending but Think about that $790,000 or whatever the amount was um, that O'Neill could have gotten if they were funded at the same level as Centennial. How many counselors, how many social workers, how many uh, teacher aides, how many additional teachers um, could that have funded to help those students out? It's really, you know, it's not surprising and not shocking. It reminds me of reading... Um, bits and pieces of uh, Savage Inequalities by uh, Jonathan Kozol. when I was in my preliminary uh, education classes as a youngster trying to understand the system. And it's it's like the same stuff, you know, like these kids are are getting this much and these kids over here in this community are getting this much. And just, you know, normally we think, about, think of it in terms of different districts, but to see it within a district is really, really troubling. And for those out there who say like, you know, the whole system is so fraught with racism, so fraught with inequity, they just gotta tear the whole thing down and start anew. This is, this is one of those stories that kind of like, you know, speaks to that. Like this is so hidden and obfuscated to use our lexicon term for today, that like, where do you even begin to really address? Because. As you said, we just recently started even seeing this data. So what other indicators are out there that we just don't even realize? You know, it's just really, uh, really, really troubling, yeah. but not surprising.
1: Yeah. I, so, man, well, I think what's fascinating about this to me, and, and it's interesting you mentioned Jonathan Kozel's, you know, sort of seminal work um, in one of the texts that I read uh, my first year of college that, that really moved me to want to become an educator, frankly, uh, and is that this is an issue everywhere right? So like this story, great reporting in the Hackinger Report that's talking about this, um, you know, this district's outside of Chicago. uh, But this is a a truth everywhere. This is 100% an issue right here in Los Angeles, okay? Um, And it is an issue in New York City, and it's an issue in Florida and Texas and all over the country. Um, And what's fascinating about it to me in the example that they gave, the district they're citing is kind of in the, the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And that's a part of the city where actually my mom grew up, and my grandmother and lots of my extended family have lived for a long time. So I've, I've actually been to that part uh, of the state of Illinois uh, a number of times, right? And when I was a young kid, that uh, <laughs> that part of, of Illinois was like lily white, right? Um, and, you know, part of what we've seen with migration, population migrations over time uh, is that, you know, as cities have gentrified and become unsustainable for folks to live, a lot of these savage inequalities that Jonathan Kozal wrote about that they used to just be concentrated in the Bronx and the south side of Chicago. Right. And those uh, sort of like um, stops on the great migration uh, path for African-Americans or for other immigrant groups. Um now exist in the suburbs. And as much as like you know, Donald Trump want to convince you that the suburbs is just full of, you know, like conservative white ladies, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people of color uh who live in the suburbs, and there's a lot of folks um, you know, who are uh you know in working class communities now in the suburbs um, as population trends have shifted, and we're seeing these big inequities because you have suburban districts that cover multiple municipalities, right? And we see the kind of like baked-in Um, inequities in funding that we used to see in the cities and we frankly still see in the cities between wealthier neighborhoods and poorer neighborhoods. We're seeing the exact same kind of stuff manifesting in the suburbs now um, as well. And so I love that this data is out there. I feel like this is this is where we need to go, man, because the reality is like I don't see school integration happening anytime soon um you know and so i think a a major kind of battle line for us is around equitable funding and saying okay if we're going to have segregated schools then they're going to be separate and equal and we're going to raise the costs of segregation on the system and so i hope this has given us some some ammunition to use in that fight
2: boom absolutely you're here for sure all right jeff next lexicon term for today's do now man well our next
1: term for today is mansplaining
2: Ooh, i don't know how much i have to say about that um yeah um I feel like I shouldn't explain Explain what that is. This is I'm some, gonna this is some kind of
1: meta-patriarchy moment right here where you're you're being asked to <laughs> mansplain, mansplaining to to an audience.
2: Why don't you tell us, Jeff? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead, go ahead. Clearly you want to explain this to us. Jeff. Go ahead, break it Okay, down well,
1: us. this story, Manuel... Well, <coughs> Pardon me. This story comes to us uh, from uh, again from Heckinger Report. They're on a bit of a roll today, man. We got to give a shout out to the to the Heckinger yeah, they Report. Yeah, Shout out to them. Um, two amazing women writing for the Heckinger Report, whose great journalism we are taking advantage of today. Uh, this is this. It just got even more meta on the man's mansplaining tip. Uh, but shout it out did, to Jill Barche, uh from the Heckinger Report um, with a fascinating story about a study coming to us out of. Switzerland that is looking at the success or lack thereof of women um, in in college and graduate school study groups um, based upon the gender dynamics in those study groups. So so here we go. Uh, As part of an introductory economics class, Swiss students had the option to work in study groups with their peers. And unbeknownst to them, a graduate researcher randomly assigned them to groups with different gender ratios. What was the result? Well, when a female was the sole woman um, in the study group and the other three group members were men, she was 10 percentage points more likely to drop the course. For men, there was no association between the gender composition of their study group and whether they eventually dropped the course or not. Now, the experiment was conducted at the University of Zurich in the years 2018 and 2019 and involved more than 600 college students and 150 study groups. The researcher, whose name I may mess up, so my apologies, um, but Zhao Yue Shen, told the Heckinger Report that the the sole women were more likely to drop the economics course not only because they, quote, find it difficult to interact with a group of male students, but also because the women became, quote, less confident about their academic ability when they were surrounded by men. And Shan hopes that her study can help women persist in male-dominated academic fields from engineering and science to finance and math. And she argues that professors and teaching assistants might purposely cluster women together in study and laboratory groups instead of spreading them evenly throughout a class which relegates them to minority status. And she said, and we quote, especially, don't put them into a group where they're the only woman. That is the worst, end quote. So Manuel, as a teacher who I'm sure has kids working in groups, I would love to get your take
2: on the implications of this study. First of all, I just love that quote at the end. That is the worst. Right? That's really like (laughs) the the quote for 2020. But yeah, that's... yes. That was really, really dope. Um, yeah, this is this is interesting. Now, we should point out this is a working paper. It hasn't been peer-reviewed, but it does fit in line with a lot of the other research out there. And, I, you know, honestly, it's not too surprising to me. And as a classroom teacher, it definitely makes me think even more about those breakout rooms I'm trying to, you know, use in, in the Zoom teaching that we're doing now and just the collaborative groups that I've done in general. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, at least within my practice, um, a lot of the professional development that I received about using collaborative group work, a lot of it has focused on sort of like academic uh, strengths and academic levels, and, and balancing groups out in that kind of way. Um, not so much about like gender dyna- gender dynamics or even racial dynamics within groups. And this distance learning is so new and so difficult. And I know a lot of us teachers have been struggling with student engagement. And um, you know, this year, at least for for our school, we use the platform WebEx for our distance learning. And we only recently got breakout rooms, well, not really recently, but we started the year without the ability to have breakout rooms. So it was especially difficult. And now we have breakout rooms. And a lot of times I just like make the rooms like randomly. And I don't even really think about things like this. This study is an important, or this report is an important reminder of, of just all that goes into collaboration and how it's not something to just you know, you just can't half step your way to student collaboration. Uh, you have to really think about uh, think about all the dynamics in play, and especially you know, this also makes me think about the fact that uh, the the schools that were part of this study, just how how few women they had in their programs, and just another reminder of why we really really needed Prop sixteen to pass. Prop, Prop sixteen could have been a big help in in getting more women um, into these these programs and throughout California universities at least. So you know another bummer.
1: Yeah. Well, Manuel, do you want to remind for our our listeners and viewers outside of the state of California, you want to remind us on what Prop 16 was?
2: Sure. So Prop 16 would have brought affirmative action back to California and race conscious admissions, but not just race conscious admissions, gender conscious as well, which is uh, um, an under-discussed aspect or element of affirmative action. So, um, you know, th- there's a lot of work that we have to do to counter all the, the systemic barriers that have kept women out of fields, such as these hard sciences that are part of the study here. And there's a lot we got to do to, you know, to to address that. And Prop 16 could have given us just another tool, another tool um, to help, help address that so that fewer women would have to be the only girls in their uh, study group at, you know, whatever college. So, you know, just another reminder that those sorts of things are needed so that we don't have this problem in the first place so that a professor could perhaps make random study groups and they are already gender balanced. That would be nice. But yeah, so I'm not too surprised by the study. Um, you know, just another reminder for me as a teacher to to think carefully about the student groups that I form.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think in fairness, we should probably note a couple of things. One, the study, uh, the study coming out of Switzerland has not yet been peer reviewed. Um, and, you know, the, it is involving in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small sample size. Right. That said, there's all kinds of other data, right, out there that we know we can kind of triangulate with this to say, like, this certainly reinforces a lot of the things we already know about gender dynamics in academic settings, particularly in, you know, STEM fields, right, and fields that are predominantly male. Um, What a wrinkle that that was discovered that I found really fascinating, Manuel, was the, the idea that Actually, it was the higher performing uh, female students who were placed as the only woman in a predominantly male group, right, that had the highest likelihood. Of dropping out, right, and you would probably assume the opposite, right? right. That like um, the female students who had the highest income and GPAs, right, and the kind of highest uh, performing academic records might be the ones who persisted the most, right? And so that I think is maybe very revealing about like what is the experience, what's the social and emotional experience for a woman, a high-performing woman, stepping into a mostly male environment. Like, what is happening to her in that context that's gonna be so crushing? A lot of mansplaining, Jeff. A lot of
2: mansplaining. A lot
1: of frickin' mansplaining, right? And and or just like a lot of social behavior that is ostracizing um, for the woman or that maybe is causing her to have some doubts about her skills and talents. Um, you know, I, that to me was actually like, kind of, um, uh, it hurt the soul a little bit, yeah. right. To think about. And also gives me in as much as this, the implications of this study have a lot to do with teacher moves around how we construct groups. There's also a big implication about like, what the heck are we teaching our boys or our young men in this yep. uh, case about how to operate in a healthy manner in a freaking study group, man, uh, yes. so that we're not causing our, our female colleagues to wanna quit, okay? Uh, yeah. When they have already demonstrated great success in this academic area. So, yeah. you know, to me, that is a big implication, right? And I think an ongoing body of work that we've talked about in a lot of different ways over the, over the years on the show, it's like, how are we training, teaching, coaching, rearing our boys so that we become the men that the women around us need us to be so we're not harming them uh, as, we, as we proceed you know, in, in school. So yeah. I would love to see you know some, some exploration of that, like what's going on yeah. with the guys in those groups
2: sure. And if I'm not mistaken, in this study, these were optional study groups. So, you know, imagine how much worse it might've been if the groups were uh, mandated study groups, like they are in a classroom, for example, like in my class, when I say, okay, we're working in groups, like it's, I don't really give the option of not being in a group very often when we do, you know, collaborative work. So um, these were the optional ones. And, you know, if there were students in there who were forced in there, I'm sure the numbers would have been even worse. So yeah, crazy stuff. All right.
1: Crazy indeed.
2: All right, folks, that was that was our our lexicon do now for today, and um, we definitely want to hear your thoughts. You know, when we put this out there on on the YouTubes and the the Twitters and the Facebooks and all that, you know, feel free to let us know what you think about um, anything that we've we've uh, shared and discussed here on the show, because um, you know. Th- th- it, it takes all of us together to get to the bottom of all of these challenges that we face in education in order to do right by all of our students. So very much, very much appreciate your input. Um, but up next now is time for our our seminar. And we we will be sitting down with LA Unified's newest school board member. You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned.
1: All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you with us today because, as I mentioned earlier, we have back with us, which is a rare occurrence here on All the Above, one of our amazing guests from a previous episode who is here uh, not only to just bring back her, her brilliant mind and her thoughts about education, but also because she has become Los Angeles's newest member of the school board, none other than Tanya ortiz Franklin, Tanya, welcome back to All the Above.
0: Thanks for having me again. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yeah, well, really appreciate your time. And uh, folks, let me give you just a little bit of information about Tanya. Tanya Ortiz Franklin is, for about the next month at least, the Senior Director of School Culture and Restorative Communities at the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. That is, of course, until she is sworn in on December 14th as the newest elected member of the Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education. Tanya will become the third Latina on the board and will represent district seven, which serves a racially and economically diverse stretch of the city um, and also some neighboring cities uh, to Los Angeles that stretches from South LA all the way down to the Harbor. Tanya began her career as a middle school teacher in Los Angeles. She went on to earn her JD from the UCLA School of Law and has worked for almost a decade at the Partnership for LA Schools, where she oversees the network's work of creating and sustaining healthy school cultures and restorative communities. Uh, So again, Tanya, welcome back to All the Above, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question.
2: Yo, so Tanya, absolutely great to have you back. I want to say congratulations, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing you on that school board for uh, LA Unified. Now, I don't work in LA Unified, but, um, you know I, know, I know there's a big, big time um, need for really dope, dope educators advocating for students across the Los Angeles area. And um, I wish we could be back in our fancy studio like we were when we first had you on um, to talk in person. But, you know, here we are. The world has changed. And we're wondering if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about your, your experience running for office as, as an educator and as somebody who's been a teacher and who's supported teachers. Um, what, was, what was that like?
0: It was a big learning curve. (laughs) Um, I have been talking with folks who are interested in running for office and definitely recommending you help out with another campaign before you lead your own. (laughs) Um, So pre-pandemic, it was a... probably the most affirming experience I have ever had. Just the first time you tell someone, I am thinking about this big leap. Do you think I'd be a good person to serve and support our kids and families? And just the overwhelming um, outpouring of you know donations and volunteering time and folks saying, yes, we believe in you, we know you, and trust that you'll do right by our kids um, was so uplifting. That continued, of course, through the pandemic, but um, the pandemic changed the Candidacy and the campaigning a lot. Um, We had, of course, done a lot of door knocking and tried to do some community events, but everything, you know, switched to be virtual. Um, But we connected with a lot of folks through texting, through calling, just trying to talk about uh, what matters for folks. And um, this moment is really different than a year ago about what matters in school. Um, First and foremost, that we can, you know, have healthy children and families. And be stable in a lot of ways, right? With jobs and housing and all of the things. So um, it feels like this was um, both a learning experience because it was my first time running a campaign and because we were doing it in the middle of a pandemic with a huge racial justice uprising and a real need to center our kids and families who've been most historically neglected and are feeling just the extra um, pressure and burdens from not being supported for so many generations.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I like to kind of dig a little bit deeper into some of that, Tanya, because you're going to be stepping onto the board at a time when I think it's fair to say there's probably never been a more complex set of challenges and circumstances facing the profession of education, facing the district, right? I mean, we're, we have a huge economic recession, which although we're not necessarily feeling the effects of immediately, like those effects are coming, right? We have uh, COVID spread that's totally out of control in almost every state in the country and including, you know, California and especially right here in L.A., Um, You know, just so much on the plate and uh, would love to get a little bit of insight from you of like dealing with that mess of circumstances. What are your big priorities as we move into this, you know, sort of winter season of COVID here?
0: Yeah. I think my priorities are still the same, right? My career has been and my vision has always been that kids, particularly from the most disenfranchised communities, get to go to college, that they get to make that choice once they graduate. And that is still true. And of course, the way that that happens right now with uh, distance learning is um, taking a lot of adjustment. And But that's what we have to prioritize. So often in school board politics, There are different things that bubble up to the surface that are important for folks when um, voting. But for me, it's always been about public education means we center our kids and their opportunities to thrive in college and career. So um, figuring out what that looks like, what's possible, given uh, any potential return um, next semester or next year, that is gonna take a lot of decision-making. That's hard because you actually have to dig into the question of, is it better or worse for kids to come back on campus and then have to close Um, And of course, all of the staff members as well. Um, Or is it uh, better to get really good at distance learning, even though it's so hard for people? Like these are really different questions, but really matter for whether or not kids are prepared for college. Um, The other big priority is our budget. You were speaking to the economy. Um, It's always been never enough in LA Unified and public education in California. And with the failure of Prop 15, we are going to feel it really acutely. I, I think I mentioned this the last time I was, on the show, but you know, I got laid off in the last Great Recession, and so it, it's personal for me, um, but it's also going to take really courageous student-centered decisions as we look at the budget for the next three years, given what's feasible and what's um, coming in from the state and the feds. Um, and then my other big priority is really just to, to keep listening to community, because those closest to kids and classrooms always have the best solutions. Classroom teachers, parents, um, they need the power and the dollars to make the best decisions for kids to be prepared. And so it's my job to help remove some of those barriers that make it hard for them.
1: Yeah. Um, I, something, Tanya, that I think a, a lot of folks, um, even folks who maybe paid close attention to the campaign in your district may not necessarily know that I have the benefit of knowing about you as a, as a colleague of yours, uh, is that you've been a, you know, a real champion and advocate around equitable funding. Uh, within the district, and I guess as a, as a part of that within the state um, for a number of years now. And, you know, as the, as the financial complexities for the district get, you know, get presumably worse as the effects of the recession become felt going forward, in a situation where we already have the kind of, um, let's say, stickiness around the work of, of creating equitable funding within the district, what are you, you know? What are your plans? What are you bringing to the table around pushing for equitable funding so that cuts, for example, that may come, don't do disproportionate harm to, you know, the, the highest need schools within the district.
0: Yeah, you know we have a, a practice of figuring this out the hard way. Um, so after I was laid off in LA Unified um, in 2010, uh, there was a big lawsuit that then ended up protecting several schools that were disproportionately impacted by 40, 50, 60 percent of their young teachers being laid off. And um, the district had the discretion and still has the discretion to think about students first when making some of those hard choices while respecting collective bargaining agreements. And that's a tricky process, but it's great to know it's been done before and to lean on that precedent as these hard choices come up again. Um, We also constantly have this battle between equity and adequacy and saying we can't get to equity because we are not yet at adequacy. And it's lovely that in LA, we have really um, energized community partners who've been fighting for equity in funding, including the partnership. And I absolutely expect and hope we'll continue to do so. You know, The vision has often been that when local control was passed in 2013 and the $1 billion of supplemental and concentration that came to LA Unified, that all of that could be equitably distributed. And we have a local um, formula in LA Unified called the Student Equity Needs Index that I think is a great um, way to distribute those dollars. But of course, there's political pressure between norm tables and negotiations versus um, thinking about the flexibility of dollars as originally intended. And so I think for me, my my vision and my plan is, to stay connected to community that has these great ideas, and to be best friends with our new, our CFO, <laughs> I just had a chat with him last week because I also need to learn about what's possible, what's on the horizon, and. Um, make sure that I can be a good thought partner as the possibilities are arising. You know, schools will get their budgets in like three months. And um, there's going to be a lot of work just even before then. And you know, then we pass the big budget in in June. Um, But I think it's just continuing to learn alongside community, uh, alongside the many brilliant people in LA Unified, and talk through the possibilities, what's on the table. And given all of the hard choices we have to make, how can we center kids in Watson, South LA, for me in particular in board district seven to make sure that they don't experience what they did back in 2010
2: well speaking of budgets and speaking of money we recently discussed on this show just how much money was spent on this year's school board race according to kyle stokes for for laist i believe this was a, a record-breaking campaign in terms of money spent on all sides for for the open available uh, school board seats and me myself living in in the area of one of the open seats I received so many mailers and just received so many calls and text messages, and I just know a, a ton of money was poured into these campaigns. And as as part of that, you have been characterized um, as somebody who is is pro charter and, and anti uh, district school. And we're wondering, you know, how do you respond to that? Um, the, you know, the, the the allegations that you are are here in support of charter schools. As Franklin's plan would allow her corporate billionaire donors to profit off our schools then let private charters prioritize students from wealthy families. And that the money that was pouring in was to help make um, charter schools uh, something that's more um, accepted in or throughout LA.
0: Regardless of who I was, that would have been the argument about the person running in my seat. I learned early on that it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my history. It was just that I wasn't the union-backed candidate, and this was the narrative that had been determined, predetermined, before I even set foot out there. Um, For folks who knew me and and had a chance to um, get to know my story, it's very clear. I've been working with traditional schools my entire career. And it's also true that I was Teach for America, that I work for the partner for LA schools that gets philanthropic funding. And so for folks who didn't dig really deep, it is easy to say, oh, she must be in this one camp. But we know working in schools that it's not just a or b there are so many nuances to what helps students and schools learn and um, that's the hard thing about politics is folks really want to simplify it and say you know choose a or b that's it <laughs> when it's not multiple choice anymore right as your show is called it's all of the above and um, when i think about what high quality education is i think I need to learn from all different kinds of school models, and I'm not yet a parent, so the question of choice is one that I'm grappling with and learning a lot about. Um, but I guess I would say to the, the folks who um, sort of needed to decide whether it's A or B and didn't have the opportunity to really dig in, um, the narrative was predetermined before I even had a chance to tell my own story.
1: Yeah, Tanya. I'm glad you named that because I, you know, Manuel and I uh, talked a lot over the course of the campaign, especially uh, as it got close to election day, because he lives in uh, in you know one of the um, the district that had the other vacancy on the board or the other uh, election on the board this year, um, and was just inundated with mailers and you know um, and messages. Almost all of which seem to boil the entirety of the conversation down to, you know, pro-charter versus anti-charter, you know, pro-district school versus anti-district school and almost no conversation about the million other issues um, in education, which is not to dismiss the importance of the, you know, of the question around charters. But is to say, you know, the, the, the essentializing of the conversation as being just about that issue uh, as an educator is super frustrating because uh, we know there's so many other things for us to be um, investigating about our candidates as well. Um, but, you know, I am wondering for folks who maybe um, saw those ads and said, you know, like, oh, Tanya works for the bankers and the, and the charter schools um, and, you know, I believe in traditional public schools and I want to support, you know, traditional public schools. What's the message, I guess, you would give to folks who, who do feel strongly about that issue and who, um, you know, who want to support a candidate who, you know, who believes in the role of districts as supporting district schools primarily?
0: First, I would say I, too, believe deeply in district schools. I was a teacher in one. I graduated from them in LA Unified, and I work with 19 of them now. And 80% of our kids are in district schools. And there are lots of things we have to learn about improving district schools. And particularly for me, again, in South LA and Watts, there need to be some really different ways of supporting our educators, our families, our students that requires some flexibility um, that maybe hasn't always been um, afforded to them. And so if you do want to start to, to peel away between um, you know, pro-union or pro-charter, what I try to say is I'm pro-kid. And right now, 80% of our kids are in traditional schools, 20% are in charters. I have lots of learning to do about how charters are serving our kids in LA Unified. And I have learning to do about the 80% in traditional schools. I've only worked with 20 or so over the course of my career. And it's my job as a board member to serve all of our kids and families well first and foremost. And of course there are economic implications I need to be thinking about. Um, The budget will be coming up as we were just saying. Um, But right now my job is to make sure that the superintendent is doing his job. The budget reflects supporting our schools, particularly our highest need schools, and to continue learning and listening alongside communities so that I can help, like I was saying earlier, remove the barriers that make it hard for kids to learn, regardless of what school model they're in.
2: Now that's all fascinating, but I think really the people wanna know, what are what are you gonna do with the mailers that were sent out about you, especially the negative ones? Because if I'm not mistaken, some of them um, were really, really low blows, and some of them have images of you with some um, very, very, let's just say, unpopular national <laughs> political figures. So the people want to know, what do, you, what do you do with those mailers? Are you going to frame them? Are you going to tear them apart and throw them away? I think that's really the, the important question here.
0: Well, they're currently filed away, um, and my job is to build relationships across all lines of difference, and I don't believe that it will be easy in every respect. I, I fully in, intend to do the hard work of reaching across the aisle and, and building and healing where there has been harm. Um, you know, Jeffrey knows this, but part of my, my work experience has been really about uh, restorative cultures. And that requires me to model that myself and to share the impacts, to ask others, to build empathy, and to make sure that we're centering our kids in our core values, um, regardless of, of what has brought us to this point. I'm, I'm not someone to hold a grudge. I'm, I'm someone to center our kids and to make sure we're um, building relationships across all lines of difference to be able to do that.
2: That's a fantastic answer. I I, I would frame them if if it were me. So that's why you're on the board and I'm not, because I'm petty like that. I would have them framed in my office and I'd be like, ha, ha, I won, you didn't. But that's why I'm not on the board. So shout out to you for that.
1: Oh, well Tanya, I'm glad you, you brought up the uh, the subject of kind of restorative practices and and bringing that to the center of your of your work um, and I, you know I want to explore that a little bit with you because uh, you know I think it's fair to say at least that nationally over the last, you know, decade, maybe even a little bit longer, the term, you know, restorative or restorative justice has become a bit of a buzzword um, in our profession, right? It's sort of entered the the jargon that gets used. And I would argue it's fair to say that most districts around the country have maybe had some pockets of success with restorative practices, but there's been a lot of you know sort of decreeing ourselves henceforth restorative. Uh, and you know we're eliminating suspensions because we're we're now a restorative district uh, type of type of moves from leadership uh, that I would argue have actually been harmful to the larger cause of you know creating uh, what you would call restorative communities. So I'm excited that someone with your expertise and lens on that work is moving into a into a leadership role and would love to uh, kind of hear from you of like what do you think the Los Angeles Unified School District, the nation's second largest school district, um, needs to do to kind of get, RJ Wright, so to speak.
0: Adults need to model it, that's the first and foremost. And at the core of restorative justice is that decisions are made with those who are most impacted by those decisions. Not to them, not for them, um, but with them. And there are so many decisions that are made really far away from kids and families who are the ones most impacted by most of those decisions. And educators and school staff, I should say, really those just closest to the learning. Um, I think at the top, in terms of, of leadership for the district, the local districts, and the board, we need to maybe sit in circle. <laughs> and as, you know, silly as that might sound, the practice of that, speaking and listening from the heart, trying to bring your best self Um you know, acting with respect across lines of difference. There there are different um, circle norms or agreements that folks will use. But for me, the core of it is speaking and listening from the heart, which is not what we do often in any profession. And that is still true for institutions of learning that profess to be moving towards restorative practices. To your point, Jeffrey, so often districts will say, well, we're not suspending, therefore we must be restorative. Those are not opposites, right? Um, Just because you were punitive before it doesn't mean you're not permissive now, right? Or cloaking punitive um, practices in a different term um, and calling it something else, right? Because um, lunchtime cleanup is the same as benching in a lot of ways. (laughs) So I think, you know, I don't have quite the strategic plan of how we get to a restorative community at the district level, but there are very core practices that I think translate really well. Like, speaking and listening from the heart, like centering those who are most impacted by the decisions. And that has to be part of my approach when um, controversial issues come up, when harm occurs, because it has occurred, it will continue to occur. Um, but having those lenses, I think, is gonna be what's different about my leadership on the board and hopefully moves us toward a more restorative community um, You know, in collaboration with folks.
2: So I've only known you through the show, you know, and and for those listening or watching, we'll link the previous um, episode under under this one so you can see our previous discussion with with Tanya, but um, but it's been clear to me since I first met you that you're somebody who's not afraid to to really push for equity and for justice. And we know that in the policy making space and the political space, um, that makes a lot of folks that can make a lot of folks uncomfortable. So we're wondering, you know, where where might you be making the the board and the district leadership and the union um, uncomfortable?
0: I think it's in the questions I ask, and that takes real preparation. So, um, I'm starting to onboard and meet with different folks in in different places. And some of it is relationship building, just getting to know each other. Um, But part of it is thinking through what is the maybe even coaching question I need to ask to help shift a perspective that might not be serving our kids well. Um, It's, in my mind right now, a lot of it is just around student data. Like, how are we serving our kids? There is so much conversation about uh, the operational pieces of school. So distance learning with um, devices and the covid testing that's happening in LA unified but what evidence do we have of student um, growth, right? Academic growth and social emotional growth. And um, that is going to be really um, a long conversation, I think, to discover that data, what is available, what is missing, and then how are we using the data to make decisions with our communities? If we look across groups of students, racial groups, gender, socioeconomic, I have no doubt we're going to continue to see disparities. We already are with grades. And then in the spring, we saw with even access to Schoology, the district's learning management system. So part of my job is to start with uncovering the data, asking questions about that, and making sure that people who are responsible are actually held accountable by a persistent coming back to the data and the response that moves where students are to where they need to be. Of course, I'm not only speaking about, you know, aspect data at some point, but there are many ways educators collect data, including observational and survey and focus groups, all of these things that can be informing our instruction. But when we lose sight of teaching and learning and focus on um, the flashy things like testing and um, partnerships, which are important in some ways, then, you know, we move away from our primary job as a district, and so I will constantly be bringing us back to our primary job as a district is teaching our students, particularly black and brown students, low income students, because that's what the second largest school district in the country needs to do is move the needle for all of the students for whom we have not well served and who many institutions of power have not well served. And LA Unified can be, I think, you know, on the cutting edge, but we need to constantly come back to our kids, come, come back to what we know and what we need to know about how we can support their overall growth.
1: Well, Tanya Franklin, um, thank you so much for returning to uh, all of the above and joining us again. I think um, you know it is uh, it is just a, a beautiful occasion to have you back as a colleague of yours for the last six years. Um, you know, I will say I have I have known you to be a, a champion for equity, and have known you to ask uncomfortable questions, and maybe even once or twice have been the, the victim of one of those <laughs> uncomfortable questions in a in a meeting. Um, but also um, excited to see you you bringing your you know your your passions and commitments to one of the most important leadership bodies in a public school system in, in this country and um so thanks for coming back and uh you know sharing a bit about your experience with us today and uh at some point in the future once you um you know of course have have jumped headfirst in the deep end and are are able to tread water and you know feel comfortable we we would love to have you back for a third time uh on all the above to talk a little bit about you know the the good work or maybe as John Lewis would say that the good trouble you're getting into um, with uh, your colleagues on the school board um, here in LA.
0: I would love that, thank you.
2: All right, folks, that about does it for this week's seminar. Up next is our class dismissed, where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Stay tuned. What up AOTA family? If you're not already following us on social media, man, what are you doing? We're available on Twitter at @aota show and on Facebook also at aota show and we've been putting up extras including exit tickets exit tickets are short videos with our guests where we ask them about a few of their favorite things of course we also put up links and in, in, in articles and stories related to the world of education so definitely if you're not already please consider following us on social media and spreading the word now back to the show
1: All right, folks, we have come to the end of today's episode, and we've reached that point in the show uh, when we like to kind of pause, reflect, give some props or some recognition to folks out there in education who are doing good work or who are just worthy of acknowledgement. And uh, Manuel, who do we got for our class dismissed today? Yeah, well, Jeff, you know we got a bit of a, a bit of a sad one, a bit of a
2: heartfelt one today. We want to shout out to the late great principal, Jamar Robinson, who was principal of Westlake High School in Atlanta, Georgia. And he and his wife tragically passed away recently. And um, they were in Puerto Rico and um, some kind of accident with with swimming. And, and the report is his, his wife was was struggling and he went in to, to help her out. And they both tragically passed away. And these are two really, really dope educators from what I could tell. Um, his wife, Ann Robinson, was a a professor and he himself's a principal of a, um, a really dope high school from what I could tell because I haven't really been to Atlanta. I mean, I've been to Atlanta, but not in any kind of like professional capacity um, regarding schools. So I'm not really too familiar with the schools in Atlanta, but I see a lot of folks um, online talk about Westlake High School, a lot of alumni and a lot of dopeness. Um, and he was a principal that was known as being really charismatic and, and really, uh, really great at just connecting with his students who are uh, predominantly um, black students. And he was um, super dope, you know? And I follow him on Twitter and he followed me back and we didn't really know each other, but I would see his posts and you could just tell um, that he really loved his school and he really loved what he did. Um, So, you know, just such tragic, sad news just coming really out of nowhere. And, And we've seen tributes um, across the internet's fly in, and if you are watching us on YouTube, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, show just a little, little bit of a tribute that a drum major did, Raquel. Uh, Russell, who um, put together a tribute um, to her her late principal, and it's really dope. And, and we'll link it below for everybody to be able to see. But um, yeah, you know, just such sad news. You know, it, it's just so tragic when you hear of any any educator um, passing away, but especially if it's um, just really unexpected, out of nowhere. So, uh, shout out to Jamar Robinson and his wife Ann Robinson. Um, may your memory live on, and we know it will in all the students uh, who you all touched. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, I'm glad we got a moment, Manuel, to acknowledge, uh, you know, this amazing couple and pair of educators out of uh, out of Atlanta. And before we go, I also just want to give a shout out to really to all the educators out there, because we know that we're heading into a very challenging time of year. And that is a, that's certainly a statement in the year 2020, which has just been nothing but challenge from the beginning. But you know, with daylight savings and the clocks rolling back, and you know, sunlight fading, um, we're coming up on the holidays, which you know, are always a stressful time for you know, for people in their own families, for many students out there who you know are um, just struggling with issues at home that make the holidays a challenging time. And so, you know, just want to kind of send some love out to all of, of our educators and say, you know, this time is temporary to the extent that it's challenging on your end. Just, you know, keep your head up, um, do what you got to do to take care of yourself. And then the, the great words of Manuel Rustin via, via Marshawn Lynch, um, take care of y'all mentals uh, during this holiday Indeed. season, for sure.
2: Indeed. All right, folks, that about does it for today's episode. We will see you in one week with another passing period and in two weeks with another full episode. Thank you for watching, catch you next time.